A word to describe the country that we live in uh, that has been used is the word meritocracy. Uh, Meritocracy basically meaning that your worth is determined by the gifts and the talents that you have, what you bring to the table. Um, And that is the culture that we live and breathe, whether that is on the baseball field or the soccer field, or in the classroom, or even all the way through our careers, that worth is determined by my gifts and my talents and what I bring to the table. When we gather for worship each week, we are being reminded that our worth is rooted in what has been done for us, not in what we bring to the table, but in what Christ has done in giving himself for you and for me. This is God's grace to us. Hear God call us to worship this morning. This is from the book of Exodus, chapter 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses, in response to this proclamation that God has made about himself, bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. I would uh, love to look with you this morning at uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 2. This morning we're going to go through uh, verses 13 through 22, Uh, in John's gospel, continuing on uh, in our series through the gospel of John together. This year as we think about life with uh, Jesus together, Um, it's also printed in your bulletin and it should be on the screen uh, behind me. But as you're turning there, uh, I want to take a a little bit of time to sort of draw us back to the big picture of what John is, is doing in his gospel. You see, John is concerned that we have the biggest possible picture in mind. The biggest possible picture of God and what he is doing in the world. The biggest possible picture of our own lives um, in mind. You see, he starts his gospel with us thinking together about eternity. And the way that he does that is he draws us all the way back to the beginning of all things. He wants us to see Jesus at every point in the story that God is unfolding before us. He wants us to connect Jesus with all of the Old Testament because he wants us to see that the whole Old Testament story was looking forward to and pointing to Jesus. And he wants us to see that that story unfolds over time. So it's not as though we have an Old Testament over here, and then we've got a New Testament over here, and it's two separate things. John is really concerned that we see how all of this uh, fits together and culminates in Christ. Um, So with that, we come to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Uh, This is God's word for us this morning, beloved. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, 
And making a whip of cords, Jesus drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Kind of an odd response, right? The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray together and uh, ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Uh, Father, we come here this morning a people in need of your grace, Uh, and it is grace that you have to give. It is grace that you have to give to us in the person and work of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. It is grace that you have to give us through your word this morning. Uh, It is grace that you have to give us as we come to the table that you have prepared for us to meet with you and to enjoy communion with you together, your people. Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would work in our hearts and in our minds uh, to see how big grace is, to see how beautiful our Savior is, and to see how wonderful, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your glory is, and that you use everything in our lives for your glory and for our good. Would you do that work, Spirit, this morning? And We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start this morning uh, by slowing us down to consider a question together, okay? And here's the question. What are you most consumed by? What am I most consumed by? Uh, What are the things that occupy your mind when all of your emails have been responded Uh, When your to-do list is all checked off, what is the thing that occupies your mind and your thoughts? What do you even get really upset about that you find yourself getting like really cranked up about? I'm a guy who gets cranked up, so I can kind of identify with that. But what is it that consumes you? What is it that consumes me? Uh, When I was 22 years old, I had graduated from college, and unlike most of my friends and the people that I went to school with, I had not met uh, the woman that I was going to marry. So it was doom and gloom. If you don't meet them when you're in college, like when are you going to meet them? Like when is that actually going to happen for you? At least that was certainly what I thought at the time. And so at the age of 22 and 23, I was absolutely consumed with the idea of who am I going to meet to marry and spend the rest of my life with. Well, fast forward 11 years later and four kids, 
Um, that's not exactly the thing that occupies my thoughts and my mind right now, but I find that now, as, as a father of four uh, young children, the thing that really consumes my thoughts is, is the thought of the future, like their future, uh, mine and Carrie's future when they're gone. Um, I, I tend to be really preoccupied uh, with those things. And as we're sitting here talking about this, I'm sure that there are numerous things that have come to your mind, or maybe it's one singular thing that's come to your mind. But I'm not getting us to consider this question because I'm, I, I, I want to be here to kind of beat down on this, because um, that's not the point. Because there's nothing inherently wrong with me thinking about my kid's future and mine and Carrie's future. And there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to be married and find someone to spend the rest of your, uh, of your life with. The reason that I'm getting us to think about this question is because I want us to identify with Jesus. I want us to identify with Jesus here in this passage that we have this morning. You see, because what consumed Jesus all the time was the glory of his Father. All the time. That is what consumed Jesus. And we see that here in John chapter 2. And here's what's also true, is that we need Jesus to change us and to transform our hearts to be consumed with God's glory in every aspect and in every part of our lives, seeing that God is using everything for his glory and for our good. And the way we're going to get at that this morning is, is taking a, a look at this passage sort of in three parts. The encounter, the responses, and the big picture. So let's start with the encounter um, that we have here in front of us. Uh, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem with his disciples. Uh, John tells us that it is the, the time of the Passover, and uh, so the people of God are celebrating the Passover feast. And they come into the temple there in Jerusalem. And Jesus takes a look around and he sees that there are people there who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And that there are money changers there. People to uh, take money from one currency and exchange it to another currency. And Jesus sees all of this happening and all of this going on, and John tells us that Jesus makes a whip of cords, and then he drives them out of the temple. Now, here's a little side note for us, okay? When John tells us that Jesus makes a whip of cords, what naturally came to my mind was Indiana Jones. You know, like Jesus is walking up into the temple, and he's got this whip made of leather, and I mean, he is just crushing it in there. You know, and he's just driving people out, right? But in reality, what this is, what this is, really, is really like Jesus gathered together a, a bunch of reeds from a plant and was more or less doing what I do when the um, feral cats in my neighborhood find their way into my yard and take a broom and kind of shoo them out. Uh, that's more along the lines of what Jesus is doing here. He's taking a, a bunch of reeds together, and he's kind of shooing people out. Not so much that Jesus is beating people to a pulp, okay? So I, wanna, I want us to be clear about that. One of the ways that we really know that in this story is that um, in verse 18, these same people come back to him and ask him a question. Now, I don't know about you, 
But if somebody had just beaten me with a whip out of somewhere, I don't think that I would be, you know, too keen to approach that, that individual. So we, we got to kind of understand what Jesus is doing. He's kind of, he's more or less doing what I do with, with, with the cats that are in my yard, is shooing them out. Um, and then what happens is Jesus goes to these money changers' tables, and he takes them, and he turns them over. Like, and you can imagine like all this money just going everywhere. And then he goes and he talks to the people who've been selling these pigeons. And he says, take these things away. They don't belong in my father's house. You have turned my father's house into a house of trade. And they do not belong here. Seems pretty clear. Jesus is upset. Uh, this isn't exactly the Jesus that we encountered at the wedding at Cana last week, okay? Jesus is cranked up. He is upset about something. He's angry. Well, why? Well, the reason that Jesus is angry is that this encounter right here is really about the hearts of these people and really about our hearts and genuine worship of God. You see, the problem that we have here is not what these people are doing. It's where they are doing it. Because at this point in, uh, in the game, uh, Israel is pretty well dispersed throughout the known world. And so if they were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, they would have been coming from a pretty long ways away. And they wouldn't have brought with them the animals that were supposed to be unblemished uh, to be sacrificed at the Passover feast. So you've got a ton of people who are coming from a long ways away. So in essence, what these people are doing in providing these animals and in changing money for people who are coming from somewhere and they don't have the money that is used there in Jerusalem is they're actually providing a service of help. A service of help from those who are coming uh, from afar. Because there would have been no way that they could have kept the animals that they were going to sacrifice clean. That would have been impossible. Um, So, the issue is not what these people are doing, but where it's taking place. You see, because it's taking place in the middle of the temple. In the middle of the place where God's people are to worship him. You see, we kind of identify with this group of people because this is the uh, ancient Near Eastern version of Amazon right here, okay? All right, here, here it goes. Here it goes. See, because they come into the temple, they have money that they need to exchange. So they exchange the money there. They take two steps to the left. They buy their animal to sacrifice. They take two more steps to the left. They hand it off to the priest. Priest sacrifice it. Boom, it's done. One click, you know? We really do identify with them in this moment. It's like a one-stop shop. They were coming into the temple, and they were just checking something off of their to-do list. You see, Jesus is mad because what they've done is they've turned worship of the one true God into a business. It's just a transaction that needs to be done so that they can check it off of their list. Worship has become mechanical for them. It was a cheap commodity to be bought and sold. 
And the encounter is really between their hearts and genuinely worshiping God. You see, Jesus is really upset because they are not slowing down and considering what is happening here, what is really and truly going on. You see, because as people come into the temple and offer up sacrifices to cover their sin, what they should be thinking is that this should be me. This should be me. This is for my sin. This is for my rebellion against God. But they're not. They've just turned it into a business. You know, and the same can be, I want to encourage us in this. As we come into worship, we should slow down. We should uh, take in the words that we are singing together. We should take in God's word. We should take in and slow down. What does it mean that we come to commune at the table with the living God? We should be thinking, that should be us, but it's not. It's Jesus once and for all. Now, I admit, I really identify with these people here. Uh, because I can get really caught up in the things that need to get done when I come in here on Sunday morning. And there's often times that I just get in a rush with checking off this thing, and then this thing, and then this thing, and I don't really take the time to slow down and to reflect on what is really actually happening as we gather together as God's people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Even just last week, I had a dear friend who could see that I was just moving and, you know, and just getting everything done, stop me and say, hey, look, can we stop? Let's just pray. I need that. I identify with these people here. And let me also give an encouragement to y'all as well, too, as one of your pastors. Um, when I get to come in here each Sunday and worship with you, and I hear your voices sing to our God, that is an incredible encouragement to me. That is such an encouragement to me. So I want to, to, to leave you with some of that. But oftentimes, I think we do struggle with not slowing down, reflecting on the reality of what it means that we gather here together each week to meet and commune with the living God. But you see, Jesus, he's upset with them for, for this. But it's not just them personally that aren't taking things in. It's that their actions and what they are doing in their business-like attitude toward worship, that they are also keeping other people from coming to Jesus and worshiping the one true God. So it's not just that they're not slowing down and thinking about it for themselves, but they're keeping other people from coming to Jesus as well, too. How do we keep people from coming to Jesus? I think that one way that we can do this is by believing that the Christian life is something other than repenting and believing the gospel. 
I think that we can keep people from coming to Jesus by thinking that, that the Christian life is something different than repenting and believing the gospel. We can have this posture that sort of Jesus just kind of gets us into the door, but the rest is up to us. You see, it's not so much when we mess up that people are turned away from Jesus. It's when we mess up and we don't own up to it that turns people away from Jesus. When we are unwilling to own our sin. When we are unwilling to be a people shaped by God bringing us to repentance and believing that in Jesus... It is finished. That the currency of Jesus is grace, which inherently means that we are a people in need and a people who need to be forgiven. When we live that out in front of people, Jesus becomes compelling. Because what we're doing is we're choosing to be honest about ourselves. We're choosing to be honest about our own shortcomings and need for those things to be covered and forgiven in Jesus' blood. If you're here this morning and you're not exactly sure what to think about Jesus, the one who is here at this temple shooing people uh, away, and it's been your experience that Christians are unwilling to own when we mess up, I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Christians should not be the people who are shaped by self-righteousness and by needing to be right all the time. We should be a people who see our need for grace and see our need for continually needing God's grace to shape us and to grow us and to make us more like Jesus. And I want you to know that Jesus is committed to that as well too, which is exactly what we see in this passage. But you know what? It's not just people who are out there that we can struggle to keep people from coming to Jesus. I thought about this. I thought, what about my home? How do I keep my kids from coming to Jesus? How do I keep Carrie from coming to Jesus? How do we keep our brothers, our sisters, our parents from coming to Jesus? I struggle oftentimes not to lead with love. With my children, with Carrie, I'm slow to connect with them, with their hearts. I tend to run to behavior modification and fix-it methods instead of running to Jesus with them. And when I do that, I'm communicating to them with my actions that Somehow my love for them is predicated upon them living up to my standards. Which is not how Jesus treats us and engages us. Jesus meets us with grace. Jesus meets us with himself. Well, after the encounter, uh, we see several different responses from some different groups of people. You've got the people who are there. You've got Jesus, and then we see some responses from the disciples. But let's think about the people that are there. Because after being driven out of the temple, they come to Jesus and they ask Jesus a question. They say, um, well, look back with me at verse 18. 
So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And what they're basically asking Jesus here is, who gave you the authority to rule this place? Who gave you the authority to decide what's supposed to go on in this place, to rule this place? And Jesus responds with this really confounding statement. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's not exactly like that, that, that's one that you got to kind of like see through the, the gray matter to get behind. It's not exactly a direct response that Jesus gives to these people. It's not very straightforward. But then, you know, the people, they engage Jesus again, and they basically have him say, Jesus, are you crazy? It took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to sit there and say that it's going to be destroyed, and then you're going to raise it up? In three days? Are you crazy, Jesus? Well, truthfully, they don't understand how outlandish Jesus' statement really is. Because John informs us and lets us know that Jesus is not talking about this physical building temple, but he's talking about his body that is going to be destroyed and raised. You see, Jesus responds to their question of who gave you the authority to rule in this place? with the cross and resurrection. He is basically saying to their question of who gave you the authority to rule this temple? He's basically saying this, rule the temple? I am the temple. I don't just rule this place. I am this place. I am God with you. I am the word made flesh. I am the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I am the one and only son of the father. Believe in me and you will have everlasting life. And then we also get to see the response of the disciples that are with Jesus there as well. And we get to see their initial response, and then we get to see a response that they have later. In their initial response, verse 17 tells us that the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples' initial response is to think back to a psalm, Psalm 69. And in Psalm 69, King David writes this psalm, and he is so concerned with building God a place to be worshipped that it consumes him. David is willing to pursue it no matter what. No matter what it costs him politically, no matter what it costs him socially, David is consumed with God having a place where his people can gather and worship him genuinely in spirit and in truth. That's an initial response that we see from the disciples. And then later, we also see a response from them that they acknowledge that this encounter is ultimately about Jesus and his resurrection. And they believed the scripture and Jesus' word. They responded by believing that Jesus is the word made flesh. That Jesus' word is is absolutely on par with all of the Old Testament scriptures. That his word is God's word. 
And what both of these responses are doing is they are illustrating that the disciples, at least at some point, were really slowing down and taking in what Jesus was doing, what Jesus was saying. Taking in that it is true that Jesus is absolutely consumed with bringing his Father glory and that he be truly worshipped. And it's true that Jesus' ultimate action that proves that he is consumed by this is by going to the cross and by being raised from the dead, forgiving our sin. Well, that's the encounter and the responses that we have. Now what I want us to do is take a few moments to consider the big picture. Because remember, John wants us to have the biggest possible picture in our minds of Jesus and who he is and of our lives. Here's the big picture. This is one of the few encounters with Jesus uh, that we have in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this encounter with Jesus at the temple, cleansing uh, the temple. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke place this event towards the end of their gospel during the Passion Week as Jesus is going um, to the cross. John chooses to put this encounter at the beginning of his gospel. He doesn't seem to be as concerned with chronology as much as the other gospel writers And the reason is, is that John does not want us to move any further in his gospel without seeing what it is that Jesus is doing here. John wants us to see that Jesus is always thinking about bringing the Father the glory that is due to him. John gives us pictures in this passage to show us this. As we come to this encounter, we have to notice I'm just going to point out a couple of things to us. We have to notice that it, takes, that it takes place at the Passover and at the temple. The Passover and the temple. You see, the Passover feast marks the Exodus event when God had rescued his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. When God had passed over the homes of those who had sacrificed an unblemished lamb and put the blood on the doorpost to signify that that house was covered by grace, marking his people out as those who belong to him. God rescues his people from bondage to a tyrant in Pharaoh, and he shows them that their bondage goes much deeper than their situation, that theirs and our bondage is ultimately to sin. And as Jesus is coming into the temple, he is thinking about what he's about to go and do. He sees these sheep. He sees these oxen. He sees these pigeons. And he sees himself, beloved. He is the unblemished lamb who is going to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And he sees them treating this like it's just a business transaction. And his response is well merited because they don't get it. They don't get what he is about to go and do. 
what he is about to even go and do for them, to lay down his life for them willingly. And they're treating the Passover like it's an opportunity for them to make money. Then we also have the temple. Jesus even kind of takes this to another level because his zeal, it's not for himself. It's for his father's house, the temple. After rescuing his people in Egypt, God gives them instructions to build him a tent of meeting, a place where he will meet and commune with his people. And as we move forward in and through the story of the Old Testament, God instructs his people to build him a temple that they might come and commune with him and worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus' zeal is born out of his desire to see the Father truly and genuinely worshipped. Yeah, he's upset about the fact that they don't get who he, who he is, but he is even more upset about the fact that the Father is not being honored and he is not being brought the glory that is due to him. That they are not coming and worshipping in spirit and in truth. And really... There's one thing that ties all of this together. That's grace. It's grace. What God is doing in the Passover, what God is doing in the temple, is grace. What makes Jesus mad is that these people are turning grace into a mechanical outlet, into a self-help guide. He's upset that they are being offered redemption by his very own life, death, and resurrection. And they are turning that into, let me just take two steps and exchange my money. And then let me just take two steps and buy my sacrifice. And then let me take two more steps. And then it's clean and it's done and it's over with it. And I don't even have to think about it anymore. They're rejecting grace. Every week as we gather here, beloved... God is giving us grace. We are here because we need God's grace more and more. To the question, Jesus, who gives you authority? Jesus says, I am grace. And his resurrection is evidence that grace is real and that it's true. That God has always come to us. And yet we so often want something different than that. We're more interested in a Jesus that we can manage. Not someone who comes in and turns over tables. I know that I so often want a Jesus who will just, will just, just be a stamp of approval on my plans, on what I want to do. I want a Jesus who meets my expectations. And Jesus is happy to come in and to turn over tables inside of our hearts and to point us to the thing that we need most, which is him and his grace. We want a Jesus whose authority we can question, not a Jesus who is the source of all authority. We want a Jesus we can acknowledge and quickly pass on to something else rather than him be everything I struggle to want a Jesus who just gets me in the door and then just let me take care of the rest. 
And Jesus is happy to meet me in those moments and to shoo me away with reeds and to turn over tables and to say, don't you get it? I'm everything. I don't just have the authority. I am the authority. I don't just rule the temple. I am the temple. I am everything. And our Savior is passionate about the Father's glory and grace, which go hand in hand, because there's no glory if there's no grace. If our relationship with God is not based on grace, then he gets no glory. They must go hand in hand. And Jesus is consumed by this. Let me tell you how consumed Jesus was by this. You see, because the idea of consume here really communicates torn apart. You see, Jesus was so consumed that the Father received the glory that is due to him that he was torn apart for it. That his flesh was torn away from his bones. That his body was broken and his blood was shed for the glory of the Father and the love of his people. Everything, beloved, everything, all is of grace. And grace is the only thing that brings us together. And grace is the very thing that brings us to the table. This week, beloved, the Lord will bless you and he will keep you. He will delight in you this week. His smile will be upon you. And he will be gracious to you. This week and this month and this year and forever and ever and ever, God's presence will be with you and he will give you his peace. All because of our beloved Savior. Thanks be to God. Go in peace.